you know it's going to be a great show tonight. And of course, we had our lovely new intro as well. I see all kinds of you in the chat saying hi from all over the place. Um, Mike's here. Mike's had a question that everybody has been talking about, so I know we're going to get to that pretty soon. And let's see, Lexi's here. Oh, did you guys hear that? We have a little a little friend with us tonight. So when Davey pops up, we do, we do. Davey's got his co-host with his co-co-host with him tonight. The the Davey baby is might be heard but not seen. So I'm in I'm in charge of the Davey baby tonight. You're gonna want to see it. They are. <laughs> um, some folks are uh, telling me that it's a little hot where everyone is um, in Seattle, and some people said that it was 91 in Seattle. Some anthro girl there. Um, yeah, so we've got a lot going on in the chat. I love it when you guys are super excited about things. We've got Anya's here. Um, She's got all kinds of questions already. Everybody's excited. And Susan says, way to go, Dad. And Baby Brock says, Mike. Um, <laughs> so now that we have our co-hosts, co we've got our Davey, we've got me, we've got all of you. You know who it's time to invite on the show? Huh? Lindsay Fitzharris. Wow. <laughs> The graphics have gotten a lot better since I came onto the show last time. Every time you come on, we got to keep pushing the gotta, envelope. Yeah, we got to yeah. keep going bigger. That's yeah, my expectations, Davey. Well, <laughs> if you want expectations, just wait till our sketch in the middle I know, of the show. I'm looking forward just to that. Wait. <laughs> We've been doing some crazy stuff. We have. Um, it has been amazing. Um the other thing that's amazing is just how much stuff you have going on in the book. And I, I popped it up from Anya there earlier, but then I lost it again. Um, that she was just impressed on how you keep everything together in the book without getting things lost. Oh, there it is. She says, um, how you keep track without losing track of Gillies because there's so much else going on. There's all these other characters. And I want to know this too, because I'm writing my book right now and I'm sad because I can't figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll figure it out. No doubt. Um, Oh, did I disappear? I just, threw the, I just threw the book cover up so everyone oh, can see okay. it. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, actually, that's great, too, because I think both of those book covers, you guys can see on the right, you have the UK cover, and on the left, you have the US cover. And I love them both because they really capture the idea that this isn't just about one man, but it's about many men. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and, you know, I really wanted it to, to be that as well, because although... Gillies needs to be at the center of the story because I write narrative nonfiction. So many of his patients' voices needed to be heard through this because I didn't want it to become medical voyeurism, you know, yeah. just for, for the sake of looking at the, at these men. Um, so I wanted to bring people onto the battlefield to understand how they got these injuries. I opened the book with P Private Percy Clare, who gets shot in the face. And that was an amazing story because he wrote this beautiful diary, this very detailed diary about his experiences. Uh, but he presented some problems because he was injured in 1917, um, mm. which is, you know, towards the end of the war. So then at the it, after the prologue, I have to dial the uh, the clock back. Also, he um, his case notes were destroyed during the Second World War. So I only have his version of what happened, which meant that I couldn't even necessarily put him in the hands of Gillies because there were several surgeons working at Gillies Hospital. But I know that he does end up at the Queen's Hospital eventually. So mm -hmm. that was frustrating. So, you know, when you're balancing all these characters and Brandy, you know, because you're now working through that, it's, it is hard because you want to make sure that some of these, you know, background characters are still looming large in people's heads. Otherwise, it just reads like case notes. Exactly. Um, 
Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, that was, that was a real challenge. I'm glad that people, you know, felt that I did that well. Cause that was all that, this book took five years. It should have taken, it, it should have taken quicker in commercial terms. I see Catherine Prendergast is on and she's, she's also an amazing author, the Gilded Edge. You guys should check that book out. Um, so we, she and I have talked about this too, that kind of balancing and getting these books done in a timely manner could be really hard when you have an academic background, but five years commercially speaking is a long time to deliver a book. This was really hard. You might be on that, on that road too, Brandy, because your book is going to be so complicated. It is so complicated already. Um, I just, I just have a small announcement for all of you who know and love. Leanne just bought a condo. Yay! <laughs> She wasn't sure. She had a lot going on. There's been a lot going on. And, oh, that's wonderful. You know, yeah, so she, she got that. She's got a question um, like 30 seconds ago. She said, <laughs> so, wow. I know, I know. So she's been in the... Um, She's been in the in the process, and so it's very cool. Um, we have so many other comments. I'm so excited. Many people said they're excited for your next book. So of course, you know, you just have to keep writing. Um, oh, God, so- <laughs> never. <laughs> I'm done. I'm I'm hanging up the shoes now. Yeah, I wish, right? Um, but Susan and I, th- I agree. It's very sympathetically uh, written, and I think. Um, oh, congratulations to Leanne. Go, Leanne. Um, but it is. And I think that this kind of book has to be, you have to be sympathetic about it. Even though Gillies is the main character, but I feel like it's not just him. And um, Kristen noticed uh, that <laughs> Gillies made at our friend, Miss Dr. Mooder. Yeah, um, I mean, Mooder does do some some reconstructive work. A lot of people, fans of the Mooder Museum in Philadelphia, which is a fantastic museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did do some reconstructive work in the 19th century. But really, the kind of work that was being done before World War One was was so small. I mean, there was a small number of patients undergoing reconstructive surgery, not enough to really try and test these methods. And so one has to even wonder how much these methods were even working in in the past. And so Mooder does do some of that, but he's also not overly concerned, for instance, with the aesthetics of it. Of course, uh, infection rates would be quite high in the 19th century. So there, there is a little bit um, of that. But, you know, Gillies, he was working basically without any textbooks, and he really had to rebuild these faces from scratch. But in terms of, of the, the voices of, of these people, I learned a tremendous amount of, through this, this process by working with a fantastic disability activist named Ariel Henley, who wrote a book called A Face for Picasso. And she... Mm-hmm calls herself disfigured, although that's not a term that many people would use today. She does call herself that. But we talked about words. We talked about language because disfigurement or disfigured might not be something that we use today. But I felt that it was an appropriate word for these men in the past because they were disfigured to the society they lived in. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about the inclusion of photos. We talked about, you know, context. And so in the end, for me, this story had to be just as much about these soldiers as it was about Gillies, because it really is about making sure that we're not putting them on the metaphorical blue benches in 2022. And for anybody who's read this, they'll know that these men were forced to sit on these blue benches so the public knew not to look at them. So I didn't want to do that in in this book. I wanted to make sure their voices and their stories were heard as, as much as possible, as much as the historical record would allow, and, and to include their photos, but within context. Um, I have, so Mike, Mike, it's time. Mike, it's time. (laughs) I've teed him up for it. (laughs) 
yeah, um, up on Facebook. And it actually started a discussion on Facebook before we ever had our, our group today. So, Mike, I'm going to ask you to type that up. And while you're doing that, I'm going to pop up Leanne's question and also uh, Catherine's question. And I just saw one blow by that I, I missed for a second um, about how you uh, you will have to tell us the story of how you got the descendant of Gillies to read the book. But first, um, question. So many reviewers were reluctant to post photos of the patients originally, because the first couple of reviews that came out were very, very generic. It says now yeah. starting to show them uh, what's changed. And I, I, I know you and I have talked about that a little bit, and I just wondered if you could say a few words about that. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I was, I was annoyed, you know, a lot of the early reviews, it was like a big photo of me or something horrible like that. Um, there were, there were two problems. So the, the guy who wrote the uh, review in the Wall Street Journal, he actually came to my event in DC. He was super excited to chat with me. He said that he had gotten the Wall Street Journal to agree to show the photos. And at the last minute, the photo editor got nervous. And so he took them out. So they actually ended up using a photo of Anna Coleman Ladd, one of the artists who creates one of those in mass for the men, which I get, you know, that's not as graphic, but it, that's yeah. also not facial reconstruction. That's, that's the mass. Yeah. So yeah. that was a, that was a problem. So, but there were two problems. There was the, the nervousness about the men's faces being too graphic, but also the museums and institutes that own the copyrights, these images are very nervous about them being licensed to the press. Um, and that was, that's been a, a bit of a back and forth. I tried to license them for the press to use. The institutes that have the copyrights didn't want that. I warned them that if they didn't do this, then these newspapers would find alternative ways around it and they would end up picking the most gruesome photos. Some right. of these tabloid places like um, over here in the UK, they would end up picking the most disturbing photos without context. And a lot of them might not even be Gilly's patients. And that did in fact happen. Happen. So, you know, it's one of those things. It's hard. Brandy, you know this because you worked in a medical museum. A yeah. lot of these places, and I get it, they're very protective of this material, but we need to ask ourselves, you know, who has a right to see this stuff? And then what is an appropriate context? I hope that people will feel that the face maker provides enough context that we can view these photos without feeling like it's medical voyeurism. But, you know, there's a lot of institutes that might disagree with that. Yeah. Um, I think that I'm going to skip ahead. So I have several questions queued up, but I wanted to get to Mike's question, partly because I think whether or not we use the photos is a kind of blue bench question, right? Yes. So um, his question is, uh, should we be allowed the luxury of averting our gaze from the horrors of war or other horrific consequences of certain actions and decisions? And he adds to that, I'm thinking about things like Emmett Till's body, much more recently, graphic photos of shooting victims and things like that. Um, not to mention the fact that these men actually lived lives. They had to go out, and, like mm -hmm. they, they're alive. They have to go out in public anyway. Um, is, is the refusal to print these pictures kind of like a blue bench? Situation? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this was one of the things when I talked to my publisher about this book and I insisted that we use photos, there actually was a feeling at the publishing house that they might be too disturbing. And I said, I have to put these photos in because number one, I if I don't, the first review is going to say it's a shame that Fitzharris puts these men on the, the blue bench again in 2022. It was important. And it's also important for the disability community. They have a slogan, nothing about us without us. And this mm -hmm. book is about 
these men who were labeled disfigured to the society they lived in. We need to look at their faces. But again, there was an exception. So for instance, if someone died in Gilly's care and didn't complete the reconstructive work, I decided not to include any injury photos, only the pre-injury photos and surgical diagrams, because I just felt that, you know, in that instance, they didn't get to, they didn't survive the actual reconstructive work. Um, But yeah, I think it is putting them on the blue bench. And it's frustrating. I just did a an interview with CNN two days ago on the Amman Poor show. And the weird thing is for people who've never done an interview like this, you can't see the person interviewing you. You're in a really tiny room looking down a black box. You can't see anything on the screen. And I'm one of those people who can't rewatch an interview once I've done it because I just find it horrifying. But I did kind of just quickly scroll through when they posted it online and I saw that they had used the photos of Private Walter Ashworth, who's one of my favorite stories in the book. He lays on the battlefield for three days unable to scream for help because he has no jaw. And he has a very good end to his story in a way. His fiance breaks off their engagement, but then Um, the fiance's friend finds out and she ends up writing to him and they fall in love. And so he has some kind of lovely moments in the face maker. And I, and I do love his story. And I was so pleased that CNN used those photos. I don't know how they, they got the permission to the, to do that. Um, but it was good to see him in there. So I, I'm very much an advocate. Let's talk about these men. Let's tell their stories and let's show their photos. Mm -hmm. And I know it makes people uncomfortable, but that's ableist, you know, our, our comfort isn't really that the in question here, you know, we, it's an important aspect of the story that needs to be acknowledged. And Mike, who, who jokingly says, I need to learn to write shorter questions. Um, but he also says like, how beneficial was it to the patients themselves to know that people could opt out of seeing them as they were? It's a question. It's something you and I talked about a lot about the masks. Are the masks for you or are the masks for other people? Yeah. Uh, It's really interesting. Yeah, I think that, you know, those masks are so realistic. People They always go viral when I, I post them. but And they do look realistic in those still photos. But if you were sitting across from someone wearing one of those tin masks, of course, it could be unsettling. It doesn't react like a face. It's mm-hmm. fragile. It would be very uncomfortable to wear over an injured face. So right. I always remind people, these men were wearing it for you so that you would be comfortable looking at them. And they were not wearing it for themselves. Nobody likes to wear a mask. Nobody even likes to wear a mask in a pandemic, let alone a metal mask over an injured face. So let's not pretend that this was like a pleasing or comfortable thing for these men to do. In terms of the blue benches, because I know Mike asked this, um, the fact that these men sat on these blue benches, the Queens Hospital in Sidcup actually is going to be opening the Gillies Department in December, and I'm going to be part of the celebrations. And they're really trying to fly the flag of Gillies now and really get the word out about his work. And yesterday, a surgeon sent me a picture, and they actually have painted a a blue bench and it's outside the hospital and there's a plaque that explains that these blue benches were uh, you know, all around the hospital and outside of into the village. And they were meant for the, the patients to sit on. And they were really a signal to people that they should they didn't need to look at them because they would be disfigured or that it could be distressing to the viewer. So I don't I think it would have been isolating to the men. I don't think that sure it gave them comfort necessarily. I think it just reinforced in them this idea that they had faces that weren't worth looking at and um, Mm. that the public needed to be warned just to look at them. So I think that the benefit, the benefit I'll put in quotes was to the viewer and not necessarily for the patient. Although I do understand 
Mike's, uh, you know, question in terms of would it have given them, you know, perhaps some peace so they wouldn't be stared at. But I think really probably the aspect was that, you know, it just reinforced that idea that there was something wrong with their faces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, you know, um, there's two sides of the coin, right? Uh, there's also the 19th century freak shows. So that's a stare at this person kind of situation. And then the blue benches are like, don't look here. And, and neither of them are correct. Neither Both of them are alienating in their own way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, um, and, you know, yeah. in talking to Ariel Henley about a lot of this story was helpful to me because, for instance, mirrors were banned in the hospital wards. And this was done under the guise that it was protecting these men. And of course, there was an aspect of that because as you go through the reconstructive process, your face often looks worse before it looks better. And Gillies didn't want these men to become frustrated with that. However, Ariel pointed out that, of course, it did, it did reinforce that idea that they had something wrong with their faces, that they should almost be ashamed or they shouldn't want to look at their faces themselves even. Um, And there was, there was that kind of, you know, there was, there was biases against facial differences, not just in the population, but in these men themselves in the story of Corporal X, for instance, who, whose bandages are removed and he catches a glimpse of his face in the mirror and he breaks off his engagement to his, to his fiance because he thinks that she would be burdened in his mind to this, you know, to be attached to this man for a life who was disfigured. And so he himself harbors these biases against his own face. So it's really, you know, it's something that really needs to be talked about. Um, These biases go back thousands of years. They're associated with disease and criminality, and they're still alive today. You know, how many villains in movies are disfigured? It's a really lazy trope by Hollywood at the moment. It is. I mean, uh, there was a big discussion about it after the most recent James Bond film. Yeah. Um, which, you know. Yeah. Which, and it was, it's a pointless yeah. thing too. You know, it's literally just a signal to the audience. This person is evil. Look at Harvey Dent in Batman. He's, he becomes evil after he is injured. Yeah. And it's, it's just crazy. And so actually Adrian, my husband, and I sat down before this tour began and made a list and the list goes on and on. It's like Darth Vader, Voldemort, um, Harvey Dent, Joker. I mean, it, go, it when you start to really unpack it, you think, wow, that's, that's still alive today in us. Um, so what was happening in 1917, a lot of the biases that are alive today, these men would recognize today if they were, you right. know, living in our society. So I don't think we're, we've, we've, progressed that far in terms of fatal biases. And, and this, is, this is something that will come up later in the year when we do Alice Wong's book um, on, she's the disability rights act- activist who, um, Year of the Tiger is coming out, but she talks about how, you know, disabled people are still people. She talks about how um, how people are always like weirded out by the fact that they get married and have children and have boyfriends, yeah. you know, like, no, we're, we, they live, you live. It's not just, and I think that is also something we've inherited from that freak show quality because the freak yeah. show always made, they were in this box. It was like, oh, this is carnivalesque. And then you go to your regular life. But, you know, people, people have lives. These people have lives and they live yeah. them and they're out there in the world. And um, to feel like you don't belong in society, it's a creation of, an, of a new minority. 
Yes, a hundred percent. I mean, also like, you know, we have a, you have a group here called the Peculiar Book Club. We all feel like outcasts to some extent. So we all, I'm sure a lot of people who come to this book club can understand that maybe in different ways, but you know, then when you think about having a visible disability, and I often say that this was a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster. And that really held true. And I think that even today we still struggle with different faces Mm -hmm. and, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to plug Ariel Henley again because it's worth it. A face for Picasso. Um, she's written a really interesting op-ed in the New York Times about her own use of the word disfigurement when describing herself. And that was the other thing. When we're talking about language, of course, the disability community isn't homogenous. They're not all going to agree or disagree with sure. the choices sure. I've made in this. But it's about having that kind of communication um, and, and thinking about what it was like for the men. Because the thing about what Gillies was doing if we just say on the surface, everything Gillies was doing was absolutely positive, that's a very sort of ableist view of Gillies' work as well, because he was arguably a product Mm -hmm. of the facial biases of his day. He was going far beyond restoring function, and he was trying to make the face look better so it was socially acceptable. And arguably, Mm -hmm. he wouldn't have had to do that if we could have accepted some of these men with these injuries you know, from the first place. So, so there's all of that aspect of the story that makes it a a more complex than just kind of it's straightforward, positive, what he's doing. The other thing, and then this is a conversation that's happening in the side chat here, which I just want to port over several things that are being mentioned here about say school shootings versus black lives matters videos versus which body, you know, um, which bodies are shown and which are not. And the fact that it's important to see these things so that, um, talking about the iconic photos out of Vietnam or other things. It's, it's a difficult choice to make, but uh, I really enjoy the fact that our peculiars are picking up on the, on the, the, um, what themes, I want to say. Yeah. Well, the themes of like the way race is involved in class and gender and, you know, how would, I mean, at the time the soldiers were all men, but what, yes. would, what, and it's women too. What about, I mean, it, it's, it's a, really yeah, he moves out into, into obviously cosmetic and he also does reconstructive work on women after the war. I learned this horrible thing that women in the 1920s were removing facial hair with x-rays, which is a horrible yeah. idea. So they were getting cancer from that. But, you know, when you think about plastic surgery today, like I started to think about the dynamics of plastic surgery today, it is still predominantly male, uh, plastic surgeons and female clientele. So, you know, you have this male view of what the female body should look like. Um, Some of that's dictated by, you know, social and cultural uh, preferences, of course, and, and that's linked to complex, you know, issues that I'm not an expert on. But I think we do need to think, I mean... It, I, I would say that predominantly, you know, plastic surgery is still a very male dominated field. Um, whereas, you know, probably like 80%, I, I'm making this up, but like 70, 80% of the clients are women. So that's yeah. also something to consider. And Gillies, of course, like he was operating on women later. He moved into the cosmetic realm. And his views of what a woman should look like was dictated wow. by racial biases, cultural yeah. biases, and things yeah. like that. So this is a, com- a complicated um, subject that you know, deserves like a bigger, you know, discussion. I think, I think, I feel like we could put together a really interesting panel with plastic surgeons today and, you know, people in in different ethics and (laughs) yeah, or a podcast exactly, which is going to be coming guys. So (laughs) 
It says, hi, Crickets joined us. We've got a couple people who come in late. Um, for some reason, uh, Eventbrite is how all the emails go out with the links. And some people, Eventbrite and their email boxes just do not work. So a couple people are, are here a little late, but they're they're here all the same. Nice. Um, and uh, Kathleen was saying, you know, considering entertainment freak shows, people were paying to be shocked. So did they even think of them as actual people? There, that, that is an interesting point. You're right. People went there going, I want to see weird stuff. And that's very different from people coming back from the war and just living their lives um, that way. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a really interesting book called, I think it's called Victorian Freak Show. I can't remember yeah. the author now. Yeah. He'd be a good one to have on the show because, you know, he taught, yeah. he looks at that kind of ethics of the Victorian period and the, in these freak shows. And of course, like, you know, obviously the people paying to come see these, these people in the show were not viewing, there was a lot of, you know, objectifying of these, these yeah, people, but then also on this, in this weird way, it was, I don't want to say empowering, but these people were also making, they were able to make a living rather than being institutionalized, which yeah. they might've been otherwise in the 19th century. So that's always like a fascinating subject. That would be a really good one for the peculiar book club. It would, it would be, it would be. Sorry. There's another book too. I was thinking about that a, a woman wrote, but I think hers was actually more about um, the performers, but all the same still. Yeah. So Leanna asks about the, the phalloplasty, which of course um, that's the one intersection of our books. I think, I'm, I think you mentioned that article a little bit in there. Yeah, I'm uh, passing the baton. <laughs> Basically, you know, for, for people who haven't read the book yet, Gillies performs the first successful phalloplasty in 1949 on a trans man named Michael Dillon. Um, now, I remember, I knew this part of the story going into the book. And I remember thinking I wanted to do more with this. But then I was taught, I, I write narrative nonfiction. So I really look at like the narrative arc. And Eric Larson was like, if you do that, you'll have to get through World War II as well. <laughs> it's like it's going to be like this huge book. And also, I'm just not the right person to write that story. Brandy's definitely the right person. So I feel like this is amazing because I'm getting to pass the baton. I mention it in the epilogue because it it yeah. needs to be mentioned. It's a you know a wonderful part of Gilly's story. Um, but she's going to be doing the deep dive into the human side. Um, and not really looking, well, I mean, I, I don't know what you're going to do, but like not necessarily just the surgical aspect, you know, yeah, you're, you're right. looking at starting impact. so far back. Right. Uh, yeah. I, the, uh, unfortunately, Gillies will kind of be an epilogue in mine too, <laughs> because <laughs> we mainly focus on the interwar period. Um, so I get up to World War II, but I don't necessarily get a whole lot beyond it. But it is a really fascinating um, situation because Gillies manages to kind of be in two worlds. And that ends up being true for some of the, the physicians and surgeons I'm studying at the earlier that this is pre phalloplasty, but when they were started to do vaginoplasty, you have these plastic surgeons who are literally fumbling their way through <laughs> creating female anatomy when they don't know female anatomy that well to start coming off of our last right, book, vagina. Yeah. It's a real, yeah, it's, it's going to be a very interesting story, but, um, yeah, and it's, it's haunting her right now because she's slowly <laughs> trudging her way through those. It's it's hard, you know. I mean, I, the face maker. I've I've said this before publicly, but it wasn't the book I intended to write as my second book. I actually pitched an entirely different book to my publisher, off the back of the butchering art. They were not convinced that that was the right book, um, and so they said, "What else do you have?" And it really scared me because. The butchering art did very well, and I just assumed that I would be able to write what I wanted to write next. And so I did the thing that Eric Larson told me never to do, which is to sell a book on the back of a napkin. And so I said, well, there's this guy, Harold Gillies, 
<laughs> he was Rubio. And they said, that's the book. And so I went into this knowing virtually nothing. I didn't even, I, I never really studied World War One. Brandy is much better at handling 20th century documents. I didn't realize like the just the hell of getting permissions to access the stuff. I mean, it was it was a nightmare. I'm never going into the 20th century. I should never say never, but I'm never going into the 20th century again because it was so difficult to navigate. Um, and it's scary because, and you know this even more than me because of the last book, but when when people, there are people alive today that feel a connection to this book and that's scary. Yeah. You feel like, you know, you have a, a duty of care to tell this story in a way that's respectful, especially when you're dealing with disability and disfigurement and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And it's, and uh, of course, um, yeah, with Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, I, I mean, the family members didn't all love the book. <laughs> really? Well, they weren't pleased with, uh, I mean, I don't give a completely, he doesn't get off the hook exactly. That's in the, true. Yeah. I tell some things that are not so nice about what he did and not everybody wants to see that side of their of their parent, you know, you can see. Yeah. Well, Catherine Prendergrass can also tell you some stories about that because she's you, you, the Gilded Edge. You got to check that. It was one of my favorite nonfiction books uh, last year. But I think that she also has some stories about relatives yeah. that kind of came and, you know, <laughs> whoa, rumphing about, you know, the way that this was, <laughs> this was t- in this honest, you know, historical way, this, this story right. was told. And so it, do- it gets tricky, um, you know, there's, there's the, yeah, there's pe- and there's also, there's people that feel like ownership over subjects. And I had a little bit of that kind of, because, because my, my training is early modern history. Um, I've never, yeah, very spiteful granddaughter, Catherine. So yeah, there's, it's, it, it doesn't feel good either when it happens. Cause you want, you want people to, to like the book, even if unflattering things are said about their relatives, but it's, it's for the most part, I have a pretty good, um, the the there were three of the there's ten children so I mean you're not going to please them all no but, you know um, you aren't three of them were very supportive and the other ones were not unsupportive they were just kind of like oh did you yeah. talk about you know they weren't all that crazy about the uh, the title I title yeah I was gonna say but you know titles too they're really hard I I didn't have a title for this book until I wrote the epilogue and what happened was I had so many bad titles I, I I sold the book under a bad title in fact when I sold it I said that's not the title I know it's terrible like I I can't think of anything better at the moment um and it was frustrating because I had sold the butchering art as the butchering art I knew it was going to be the butchering yeah. art um and and my next book is called Sleuth Hound and I love it and I'm gonna fight for it, even if the publisher pushes back. My next book is on a guy named Joseph Bell, who was the real life inspiration for Sherlock Holmes. He was Conan Doyle's professor. So it's going to be a romp through Victorian forensics and uh, legal cases and legal medicine. And it's going to be really fun. Um, and I love I love the title Sleuth Hound. So I think that's going to be it. This one, I had no idea. And so I was writing the epilogue and I came across a letter to Gillies from a friend who was congratulating him on his knighthood. And he said, um, Dear Facemaker. And I thought that's that's perfect. I just love it. The the yeah. facemaker. But again, this is this this is a book about, you know, many men. And um my my publisher also the original cover was terrible. You'll just have to take my word for it. I hated <laughs> I it. 
Um, and I told them I hated it because I, I just, I mean, books can die, uh, you know, in my opinion, off, off the back of, um, you know, a bad cover. And so yeah. my husband, who's an artist, ended up coming up with this concept. We had to come up with something very quickly. Gillies has wrote a book on plastic surgery and the cover is a picture of his hands holding a scalpel. So we took this concept and it's obviously it's a scalpel, but in the reflection, you see the bandage soldier and that's based off a real photo of a soldier. So I loved it again, because it was about many men as well as one man. And then this, this UK cover, I, I, the Penguin, my UK publisher just really nailed it. I thought that was such a cool cover. It's really beautifully designed right down to the, to the back here. It's, it's a very cool book. Um, so they, they got it right. My U.S. publisher struggled, but we, in the end, we got two really cool covers that I, I like equally. Um, but yeah, titles are terrible. So like, I, I get the family were kind of like, Ooh, Dr. You know, Mr. Humble, Dr. Butcher. I get why they, that could great, but you know, I thought it was a great commercial title. <laughs> His actual names that people gave him. So, you know, that was, it's not my fault. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I know. And it was a great commercial title. You know, I mean, that, that not all those decisions are, are entirely in the right. author's control right. either, which I think a lot of people don't realize. Well, I think I see Davey. Davey, are you still there with us? Or maybe I don't. There he is. We of course are- I'm still here. What else would I be doing? <laughs> be? Definitely not entertaining a baby this entire time. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, we, are, we have arrived at our halfway mark in the show. And uh, with that adorable sound effect that I just heard there, I think it is time for us to have our, our musical guest, which is, uh, is a new, we're doing something new at the Peculiar Book Club. So of course our house band is still Charming Disaster. They were just here and I took them to lunch and they got to pet chickens um, and, and all that. But in addition, we are bringing in some new talent. And this is a chance to give people uh, to, to see a whole new group of, of bands. Many of these are friends with Charming Disaster. And the one we have for you today is called the Dust Bowl Fairies. And so take it away. Hello, Peculiar Book Club. We're the Dust Bowl Fairies duet. That's fairies spelled F-A-E-R-I-E-S, the old peculiar English spelling. I'm Ryder. And I'm John Wooden. Uh, We're going to do one of our dark fairy tales. It's a bit of a tragic tale, which is our specialty. Uh, And I will be playing the part of the bunny. And I will be playing the part of the wolf. Thank you. 
there's nothing you can say to make me play your little games. You are fluffing, it is true. And I am done beholding you. So do not strike another pose. I will not block your hopes. You've a blemish on your nose. You have torn your pantyhose. <laughs> That's amazing. Sorry, I have the wrong earbud in. <laughs> yeah, so that was a little uh, little claymation from the Dust Bowl series um, to break this up a little bit. I think. So, I love it. <laughs> yeah. By the way, like in case people don't know, I know that we've talked about it before, but we are launching a podcast this fall. So we're getting the we're we're still working on all of that, but. You're going to get a lot of Brandy and me very soon. It's, You're going to hate it. <laughs> You're going to hate my the sound of my voice very soon. That'd be so good. And the trick is, the, the sneaky trick is, um, while the podcast will be available to anyone, only those of you who are subscribed get to send us questions. So we will be building the podcast around things you want to know about 
from us, which is pretty cool. The podcast will have a name, yes. Um, we think we're going to call it Peculiar Histories. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I think so. I think we're so. still working on it. We're still working on it. <laughs> we'll have a few drinks and we'll figure it out. <laughs> Everything gets figured out over gin. So, Speaking of drinks, by the way, um, we did have a lovely, lovely drinks menu for tonight. I ended up having to drink coffee because I was afraid that I would fall asleep during the, it has been a heck of a week, you guys. I am working on this book every day and my brain keeps exploding and the book's trying to eat me and I, I should do some claymation of the book chasing me around. Um, but uh, the drink was so good. It was so tasty and it was slushy and it was good. And I just was wondering um, if you guys want to pop in the in here and just say what you're drinking tonight. I know, Lindsay, it's also quite late and you're probably not drinking a slushy of, of alcohol. I'm just drinking water. <laughs> Unfortunately, I almost I almost did the gin, but you know I wanted to stay sharp. So <laughs> really good. What she um, so this was this is Cat. Cat is our our drinks maven. We now have mavens, uh, peculiar mavens, and they help us by doing lots of fun things. Jennifer does our Goodreads, and uh, Lexi, and actually we've got all kinds of people. Leanne. Um, I'm, I'm missing some people in my brain because that's what happens when my brain is tired. But they're they're all helping out, and Cat creates cocktails for us and she comes up with the menu and then the names go up online and we decided to call this one scroggy grog (laughs) i saw that in the newsletter i love it i love it and for those who haven't read it dr scroggy was was gilly's alternative persona it was kind of like a patch adams type thing he would dress up in this alternative persona he would go into the hospital and he would bring oysters and champagne and he would gamble with the boys all the things that were technically banned at the hospital and he would do this occasionally to lift their spirits so he was he was quite a character yeah he's he's quite he's quite the guy um and i like the idea that he let them get away with things that they weren't technically supposed to do that he would get on them for you know during the day but in the evening he was like "Mm, yeah one person yeah and it was a weird dynamic too because he would say you know don't worry sonny you'll have as good a face as anybody but but some of these men were obviously they were older than gillies but there was this kind of paternal relationship and you know he was working on them for months years sometimes even over a decade so there was a real friendship that that formed some of these men went on to work for gillies um and yeah it was just it was kind of a joy to to learn more about him because in my first book about joseph lister lister was a quaker he was a victorian there wasn't a real sense of a of a like a fun personality there certainly and that was hard actually because he could be quite boring um which 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 served the book well you know I still I'm always still thinking about the movie because I'd love to see a movie made of it I'd love to see a movie made of any of my stuff but also the face maker because um I'd love to see an adaptation where we're seeing disfigured faces of heroes rather than villains. Um, but, and, and someone also asked about uh, the connection with Gilly's family. Gilly's has a great, great nephew who's very famous. His name's Daniel Gillies. He was in the Vampire Diaries and other uh, TV shows, I think the originals. And um, I just joked to him on Twitter that he should read the Audible book and he agreed to do it. And I guess as he was recording it, he would stop and say, I didn't know that about my ancestors. So it's been really fun for him to learn about Harold Gillies through this book. And it's been fun. It's been great for me. Uh, yeah. Would Gillies play, yeah. you know, he's interested in getting involved apparently in an adaptation. Um, I guess like if you guys Google him, he's a very good looking man. Um, and, and I've thought about it and I've thought, I don't think he should play Gillies. I think he should play 
the soldier at the beginning who gets injured. And then we, we, we kind of see Gilly's rebuild his face. Cause he's, he's right. so good looking like <laughs> let's rebuild I, that what? face. So. I, I just Googled it and it's gotta be Mark strong. British act, bald British actors. You put a mustache on Mark Strong. Oh, I'm yeah, okay. Perfect. <laughs> the thing is, it doesn't actually, I guess, need to technically look like Gillies because nobody knows what he looks like. But um, I just feel like Daniel Gillies is like, he's too good looking to play his great, great uncle. Um, but he, it would be great to kind of like damage his face <laughs> and then bring it back to kind of the quality that, that it is. I don't know. Um, I, ho- I hope he never listens to this. Like all these like crazy ideas I've thought about. Um but I, I hope that if something comes of it, he'd be involved because he's a great actor and it would be, it'd just be fun angle to have him involved in an adaptation. Right. No, I agree. But what I was thinking, Lindsay, is it takes so long to make a movie. He might be, you know, this could be like 20 years from now. He might be ready. <laughs> he might be ready. Yeah. He might be balding at that point. He might look more like his uncle. I mean, I think also it's probably more a TV series. I like, you know, Downton Abbey meets ER, you know, and you could bring out all these different, because there, there is an arc to, to the face maker, but Gilly or um, Lister's story about germ theory, there's a very definitive arc there, you know, and it's, and it's one solo character, Joseph Lister throughout. This one feels like it could potentially be like a, limited series where you're bringing out some of these other soldiers and their stories and um i mean a girl can dream i mean we always are dreaming dreaming of adaptations but mostly because i just love the medium i would love to see something like that come to life um but it's a big ask because it's really hard to get (laughs) get anything made mostly hollywood is just determined to say no to everything these days so well i mean the cinematic experience is almost gone it's it's all about streaming services now so yeah yeah i know that's true yeah it's sad though because like i love i do love the big movies i saw top gun recently and you know i mean tom cruise is crazy but but it was a really good movie and it was like the old school popcorn movie it felt even better than the original and there is something still thrilling to seeing all of that and so i hope that doesn't go away forever because i do love those big hollywood movies but i don't know it'll be around it'll be around around. ask questions (laughs) (laughs) why i need to google that that's the the last thing we did for fun before the davy baby was born we're like we're not gonna go see a movie for a while so yeah well i you know davy since you're since you're here with us for the moment i do wonder if it might be time for a little video action i think it's time speaking of having fun I didn't describe Harold or Daniel Gillies as an absolute unit, someone that anthro girl. I that I wish I had said that though, because that sounds hilarious. And I am now that's gonna be in my head. Shoot at interviews. I'll be like, Daniel Gillies is an absolute unit. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Sorry, I saw that in the in the sideline. I was like, wow, I I don't think I would have said that, but I'm gonna steal that from this I, I point on. Remember you saying that too? So, you know, but really? <laughs> wow i must have been drinking that night <laughs> so it doesn't sound like something i'd say just, susan ballinger's like no you did <laughs> i gotta look back at that video jesus <laughs> all right that's to daniel gillies now he has to see the show tonight oh we can find the audio i love it and girls like we'll find it we'll find it <laughs> yeah Kiva, authors they're just like us <laughs> <laughs> So we we did have a bit of fun. So um, I did not come up with this idea at all, but I was a willing participant. Yes, she was.
wait a minute, this isn't the right music for turn of the century golf? That's better. All right, sport, you ready to play? I'm ready. I'm ready. All right. And what you got there is called a wood. Wood? Mm-hmm. But it's not made of wood. First thing we're going to learn is the stance. Now that's baseball, sport. Pubs down on the ground. What could possibly go wrong? There we go. Oh, you didn't hit the ball. That's usually a key to the game there, sport. Line your thumbs up, and then you actually want to bring it up and literally scrape the grass. Right, we're gonna do it slow this time. Hey, all right, look at it, look at it go! My God, I can't even see you're in the trees. I have intentions, they just don't travel down <laughs> to the ball. Now you're supposed to aim at anything in particular or? Um, we'll get to aiming. We gotta work on striking before we get to aiming. Okay, we got a bigger club out. What could go wrong? There it is. <laughs> Nothing can stop you now. That's right. Don't you supposed to have that form though? <laughs> I think that's bowling. Oh. <laughs> Up the ball, ready to go. Hey, there you go. Look how it's done. I don't hate this game. <laughs> I feel like a butt wiggle helps. A butt wiggle helps. No, uh, Gillies was known for his butt wiggle. All right, so knees slightly bent, arms straight, nice and back, and scrape that grass. Do they always end up with ties in their face? Is that a thing? All right, this one's for Queen and Country. We even raised it up on a tee for you. Well, it went straight. That's We could say it went straight. I begin to see why people look angry. <laughs> What if I get more angry if I'm like... This is what a golf club looks like after Brandy's done using it. I have aggression issues. <laughs> All right, before you can officially be called a golfer, there's one more thing you have to learn. What's that? Putting. Putting? Mm -hmm. Is that like pottery? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Hey, that's it. That is much easier. That's putting. Much easier. I think we should just forget golf and go play putt-putt. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> Well, Brandy, we've reached the end of our golf lesson. What do you think of this sport that Harold Gillies mastered? Um, I, I'm surprised you didn't have a lot more rage. Yeah. Yeah, like rage and rage. I mean, at some point, being a surgeon is easier, I think, than being a golfer. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's maybe why he stuck with surgery instead of golf. I would, I would, frankly. You know, plastic surgery or playing golf. Bye, Peculiars.
I would be terrible at that too. Oh, and I was, I was telling Brandy that um, I've been really lucky with reviews, but there was one little cranky review in the UK where the reviewer said, I hadn't spent enough time talking about Gilly's golf career. And I was like, wow, weird. Why would I, why would I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's in there. I feel like it's in there enough. Like, it's in there. It was, it was the thread that, you know, Brandy was like, I'm not sure how funny we're going to be able to be with this subject matter. And then, <laughs> It started with the text message of, have you ever played golf before? <laughs> and so you guys know, that was not me pretending that I couldn't hit the golf ball. <laughs> no. It's a very that small ball. All... I can't, I, it just, it, I don't understand. <laughs> and I did not give her good instructions. If, if we were actually out there, I would have given her much better instructions. But I basically put the club in her hand and <laughs> sent her on her way. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, it was an important part of his identity. Um, but and and actually, there's a surgeon uh, in the U.S. who just sent me. There was actually a golf card of like a vintage golf card of him. I think it's a car like a caricature of him, and he sent me it. It's not in my possession yet, but there was a surgeon in uh, Connecticut who gave me a pair of the Gillies forceps that he had created. Oh, you can see here, and they look—they look really similar, I guess, to what they use today. Except now, he said that um, they automatically close, whereas these these don't. You have to manually close them. But so that was kind of a cool little thing. And you guys could see too. I've I've collected a few World War One objects. I had yeah, I have the helmet, which I was worried that my cats might knock it over. And then my husband's like, "It's a it's a helmet. Hopefully, your cat's knocking it over isn't gonna." It you know harm it if it does then those guys had some serious problems. Mike, actually yes, saw Mike, this. that's right, that's right. I think Jerry Seinfeld has a whole bit about humans keep doing things that we had to invent the helmet. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, and for the first year of the war, these men didn't have any helmets, and so the the, the rates of facial injuries. But also, this helmet isn't real. It doesn't seem like it's that protective to me anyway. And the other issue they had with some of the earlier versions of the helmets is when they would get hit, they would splinter off and hit other oh. people around them in the face. So facial injuries were were really prevalent in the First World War for a lot of reasons. Also, the fact that these men were going into the trenches, they were not equipped or to understand the nature of the war that they were about to fight because nobody had ever fought that kind of war. A company of just 300 men in 1914 could deploy equivalent firepower as a 60,000 strong army during the Napoleonic Wars. So when yeah. you think about, you know, just the level of, of manpower or firepower that was going into these battlefields, it was incredible. Anybody could survive. Uh, it was awful. The cats are absolute units. They are. Yeah. Cats. I'm, I'm reading this comment. So first of all, Kesa says her cats are built. And then <laughs> Mike brings says those cats are actually units. And and then everyone just fell apart from this. This is <laughs> Yeah, it's it's descended. Uh, but Jennifer, yeah, I that that quote, the science of healing stood baffled before the science of destroying really stood out to me. Actually, there's yeah. something that I bought that's a World War One object that I've never uh, used in an interview. I'm just going to get it real quick because it's worth seeing. One second. If if you okay. think we could do this show without you, peculiars, we could not. Yeah, we could not. We absolutely could not. Your chat. <laughs> to be here, um, Kristen Messon says, "I don't know a lot about warfare." And Lindsay's discussion of the problems so of the trench. My husband just, got this for me for for my birthday. <laughs> That's it's very romantic, um, and and they're very rare. And so this was a this was an alarm that an officer would carry to warn men of gas attacks, lethal gas attacks, because of course this is the first war where you have chemical 
weapons being used. And so I'm going to, it's, it doesn't sound, it sounds kind of awful, but I'm going to blow on it so that you can hear a sound from the first world war. Whoa. So that you can imagine like how awful that would be if you were in the trenches and you heard that and you knew that a, a lethal gas attack was happening. I'll do it one more time. About it. My husband's probably like, what is she doing in that room? I know her and Brandy have weird conversations, but, but uh, they found out, let's say they heard that sound and they knew the gas was coming. Yeah. What could yeah. they do? Could they do anything about it? Well, they probably would put on, uh, if they had their gas masks, they would put it on. The gas masks were, were introduced later in the war, of course. The, the, the gas attacks in World War I sort of became synonymous with the savagery of that war, but it didn't kill as many people as you might think. It was really just a psychological, the psychological impact was huge. The men really yeah. feared it, but it wasn't used maybe as much as, as, we, as we kind of think because it, it just became this kind of bigger than life um, mm. aspect of the war. But there were all kinds of new... Uh, you know, instruments, there were tanks that left crews susceptible to new kinds of injuries. In fact, these, these um, crew and these tanks would wear these masks that were sort of like chain mail that covered the lower part of their face, but they were really uncomfortable to wear. So a lot of times they just didn't wear it at all. And they would get these facial injuries when the tanks were hit, the tanks would catch on fire, they would get burned. Um, the pilots, I mean, these pilots were crazy. They called themselves the 20 minute club, the time it took to shoot down one of their planes. They took pistols, the air to shoot themselves in case their planes did it. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was just when you think about it, you know, people sometimes say, "Oh, people were so so much more patriotic in the past." I think they just were more naive. They didn't really know what they were heading into. Yeah. And these, and sometimes these these men were boys. They were so young. Right. Right. Um, there was a story that I read that I didn't include in the face maker where this, this young kid goes to enlist, and they asked him whether he wanted to enlist for a year or if he wanted to enlist till the end of the war. And he thought, well, I don't want to stay in the army for a year. I'll stay till the end of the war. Oh no. Right. And then it went on for four years. So they just, they had no idea what was awaiting them. And it was such yeah. a strange war because it was both modern and it was old school. Like there were a lot of injuries with horses kicking men in the face. Um, and there were a right. lot of who died, of course, people have seen Warhorse. And so it was a weird combination of, of new technology and, and very old technology and that kind of clashing that made this such an awful event. Well, and we've got a couple of comments over here. Um, one, the, the, the idea that it was going to be over by Christmas, that people just thought it wasn't, it was, it was going to be a quick thing. Yeah. Um, Susan talking about seeing original, I've seen original planes too, and they just look like death boxes with wings. Yeah. Um, Horrific. Yeah. There were there were a lot of people, Catherine said, who enlisted to get citizenship. And Amanda was saying, like, the legends of the fall had us believing it was all about gas. But you know what? I think gas is so scary. That was a great like movie. <laughs> I mean, Brad Pitt in the 90s. I mean, it was a great movie. But yes, it was. Remember that gas scene? And he's, like, crawling through it. And it was terrible. I mean, it was. It was it, trust me. It, there were definitely gas attacks during World War One, But more, more men were dying from other means than they were dying from these gas attacks. It's yeah. just that it became such a... A feared thing and it, it really kind of lived in the imagination of these men and oh, it was it you, yeah oh sorry don't you think too though that it's it's the it's this invisible thing it's not a bullet it's not a 
there's something yeah. creepy and disembodied and Dracula-esque about it. Yeah, and using science to kill, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, of course, so much of, of the technology was was science to kill. But yeah, I think there was something about that, the invisibility of it and not knowing what it could do to you. Um, so the, the gas attacks definitely, and the, and the, and the gas masks were so creepy. I have a, a lamp made out of a gas mask. Of course I do. Um, it's, it's actually, I believe it's a World War II gas mask. I found this in like an antique shop around here. And this guy said, oh, I made that. And my daughter said, nobody would buy it. And I was like, they didn't count on me stepping into the shop. Um, I'll have to get a picture up so you can share it on the peculiar Facebook page. But, um, yeah, they, they, they were very, it it was, it made everybody look very inhuman and there was something, it was like a faceless war actually on many levels. Um, that was a title I played around with too, like something about facelessness and the facelessness of the casualties at the time. But, um, God titles. I'm just, I, you're still working on yours, aren't you for this next one, but it's, yeah. Um, the, the weirder thing is now that titles kind of go in these waves. Um, and I write fiction too. And so I'm really worried that my next book is going to be something like, you know, there was a girl on the train. It's gonna be like boy on the bus, dog under a bench. I don't know. There's always like a kind of, (laughs) you know, they go in, they go that way. So for a while, all nonfiction books had like the one word title and the really long subtitle. And then you have the long title no subtitle and yeah it is it's kind of terrifying what about yeah, actually it? someone some said to me that it should have just been face maker and now that haunts me because i'm like maybe it should have been maybe there should have been no the maybe it should have just been face maker <laughs> you just you just question all this forever and ever like you just question every creative choice you make and you're like oh i shouldn't read the reviews <laughs> of my book yeah, as, someone went like, to, oh. as someone who went to the ohio state university the the is very important the, it's yeah, called the, the Ohio State. They trademarked the. the they trademarked the <laughs> in front of the name. So yeah, it's the Ohio State University. Wow, I, I would always call it Ohio State OSU. I know. I know. Is it, yeah, so yeah. It's OSU. <laughs> no, 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 no. But but you know, uh, it's just ca- not casually, but like. Like when the players do their starting lineups on Monday Night Football, they'd say, you know, Davey Barris from the Ohio State University. Oh, that's (laughs) weird. The Ohio State. Yeah, but like everybody else just calls it OSU. It's totally true. I mean, we're in Ohio. But the, what I'm saying is the, yeah, it it has. Um, we had a, a late, a late edition, Amanda, sorry that, uh, yeah, we were an hour early. I tried to get the news out as, as well as I could because. My fault. um, Adjusted it well. You guys wait. Um, I'm actually going to be doing the next one from uh, Glasgow, so I'll be up late, and and y'all be it'll be early for you. So should be interesting. Well, we went we went long just for you to so make sure you'd make it. We did. Or seven and o'clock, people. Isn't there still a quiz, David? Did you do a quiz? There is still a quiz. Of course, there's a quiz because I have to. You know, I couldn't jump in earlier to the conversation, but Lindsay, I have to say that. Oh, this no, might be one of those quizzes. <laughs> I'm always doing them so badly. I'm so bad at these. <laughs> this might have been one of the best educations I've ever gotten on World War One. I've uh, I've taken plenty of AP history courses in my time, and it feels like we always jump over World War One. Yeah, someone we got do, assassinated. Yeah. There was a war. Let's get to World War Two. <laughs> yeah, that's where and, that was my starting point. I yeah. was like, why did this war even start? So and I, all for stupid reasons, guys. By yeah. the way, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well. We're going to go back to that reason because I thought about like TV shows about plastic surgery, but they're, they're all 
so superficial enough, the same complaints and things like that. So I thought, let's go back to World War One. Let's learn a little bit more. And the quiz this week is called, wasn't Franz Ferdinand in a band? <laughs> <laughs> this quiz is all about Franz Ferdinand, the launching off oh, point God. of your story. <laughs> <laughs> the peculiars will be able to help you. Uh, I'll be shocked if anyone like straight up knows the answer. I'm assuming you'll be able to deduce the answer. Um, but so let's get into Franz Ferdinand's life a little bit. Obviously, uh, the Archduke who was assassinated that kicked off World War One. Uh, but early in his life, two people blocked Franz Ferdinand's path to the throne. His cousin, Crown Prince Rudolf, committed suicide, and his father, Archduke Karl Ludwig died how was he also assassinated was it in a skiing accident or did he have typhoid fever uh i'm gonna go with c she's going with c peculiars do you have any do you want to help around do you the peculiars have any guesses on uh franz ferdinand's father susan ballinger's guessing b skiing accident (laughs) what did they they ski back i'm assuming they skied back then right i don't know actually (laughs) assuming it was a hobby back then i mean it could have been assassinated i guess yeah because if the the parallels between all these assassinations it could be a all right well she guessed c well you have a final answer do you want to put a final c so you're sticking with c yeah yes it is typhoid fever that's that's how his father bad or dysentery yeah (laughs) All right, question number two. Franz Ferdinand's marriage to Sophia Chotek was controversial, controversial, falling in love with a lady-in-waiting to the Archduchess Isabella. The Emperor Franz Joseph agreed to the marriage, but it was considered blank. Was it considered unlawful in its time, unblessed, or morganatic? Morganatic? Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) I pulled out the thesaurus on this one. Yeah, I think it was... B. I think it would have been B. It couldn't have been A. I'm lawful because By the way, if you get, that would have created yeah. issues. If you yeah. get into Franz Ferdinand's Wikipedia page, there are a lot of names. <laughs> there are a lo- everything is like this person and that person and the arch of this and Duchess. Oh my of- god. Okay, I'm going with B, guys. He's going with B. Oh, we have a few answers in the chat. The answer is Morganatic. What does that even mean? Morganatic. Uh, Morganatic marriages, sometimes called a left-handed marriage, is a marriage between people of unequal social rank, which in the context of royalty or inherited title prevents the principal's position or privileges being passed to the spouse or any children born of that marriage. So she like, she couldn't ride in the royal carriage. She couldn't like in family gatherings, they made her go like all the way to the end of the line. Wow, it's so, a shame that she was in the car with him on that I, day. I it would have been nice if they'd kept her out of that. <laughs> I know. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so interesting. Uh, but he was in love, and he was That's determined crazy. to be married. Wow. Uh, and our final question, um, a little bit about his politics. So he was a leader after all. And as a leader, Franz Ferdinand had some surprisingly liberal views advocating for blank during his political career. Was it autonomy for ethnic groups within Austria-Hungary? Was it increased religious freedoms, or was it reduced military spending? What do you think the liberal policy uh, that he? I mean, it feels like it shouldn't be A because that's kind of what he was. Uh, What do you think, guys? (laughs) Everybody's like, yeah, maybe C. I feel like A and B are too liberal. Oh, Catherine thought A. Okay. 
I'm going to go the, the details. Uh, it's not entirely ironed out what his political views are, but they actually thought, unfortunately, it was A, autonomy really? for... Not unfortunately. Autonomy for... <laughs> unfortunately, he uh, was... <laughs> he was forward-thinking, um, that bastard. <laughs> uh, it says here, especially the Czechs in Bohemia and the South Slavic peoples in Croatia and Bosnia. Remember, you know, today this is a collection of territories that we know as individual countries... Uh, yeah, he was kind of for that, although he had strong. Yeah, I'm with Mike. The hungry. irony of that is so bizarre yeah. because he was. Yeah, that's I mean, also, I do talk a little bit about his assassination. My my editor made me cut a lot of that out. But that's such a crazy story because he I, I didn't realize this, but they throw that one of the assassins throws a grenade um it misses his car he then is brought back around on the parade route by accident so it's like if 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 oswald missed jfk and they were like let's bring him back around for another go and then you know so it's just one of those situations that's such a bizarre story that you just think maybe we were fated to enter this horrible conflict but uh yeah you want to talk about fate he actually this was going to be another trivia question he actually almost died uh, a, a, like a year earlier, he was visiting England and they went on a hunting expedition. He was, it was a bad part of him. He was really into big game hunting. I, I didn't oh, want to bring that right. up, but um, he, the, there was an accident, a rifle accident. He almost got shot like a bullet whizzed past him. Oh, so the person who was hosting him in England said like, it's almost a shame he didn't get shot. Right. Then there wouldn't have been an assassination. Oh my yeah, gosh, it's crazy! And the guy who 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 ended up assassinating him died just a few days before <laughs> the end of the First World War, of uh, of consumption. So it's such it's, it is such a horrible story on so many levels. How we yeah. enter this terrible conflict, which then sets up the Second World War, and it's just it's just this defining yeah. moment of this kind of you know haphazard assassination there. But but, but I'll tell you, listening to that in audiobook form, uh, that that whole chapter there on the assassination kind of was a thriller. I mean, it really. Oh, that's good to hear because yeah. that my editor's like, there's a little bit too much of this, and I said, but look, I you know, yeah. I, if he, the other thing was, I I made the New York Times with this book, which was a real thrill for me. And Brandy was, I was on the plane flying from L.A. to New York. And she sent me, I think you were the first person to send me a message before I, and you were like, she, all it said was, tell me. <laughs> and um, I literally just heard from my agent and all he said was 13, which was what I was waiting to hear if I had kind of squeaked on. But I was so excited because, you know, I looked at the list this week. Um, my manager manages Ice Tea, and Ice Tea's got a book out this week. And I was looking at the list this week and only two books. New books have made the list this week. So there are a lot of books that hang on. So yeah. when you really think about it, there's probably on a good week, there's maybe five new yeah. slots. Um, and I thought a book about a guy nobody had heard about, about a war most Americans don't think about or care about, right, right. you know, kind of elbowed it on with Matthew, Mc- Matthew McConaughey's book has been on the list for 56 weeks. What is, I'm going to have to read that book. I'm going to be adding to this. Now he's going to keep staying on the list, but I think that's almost why he's on the list. Cause people are like, what Matthew McConaughey? Like, why is that on the, the Brandy, list? Brandy, you have a new challenge. You got to go out and get Matthew McConaughey on the show. I think now you got to use those <laughs> networking skills. Weeks. Has Use anybody has skills. any peculiar Reddit? It's called Green Lights. I mean, it's I heard him interviewed on Mark Maron. I heard him interviewed on WTF with Mark Maron. 
I, that's not all I got. Kind of, Catherine says he's yeah. kind of a unit, though. He is a good-looking guy. But I'm like, well, I don't understand what what it is about this book that it hangs on. Viola Davis's book's been on for a very long time. Um, there's been, you know, Bill O'Reilly's books up there. James Patterson, of course, like he's going to be on it. Actually, James Patterson made the list the same week I did, and he also gave an interview that week about how white older men there's like biases against them. <laughs> it's like he had two books on the New York Times that week. And I was like, two thumbs down to that answer. <laughs> I don't think he's suffering at all, but. I'm loving that. Um, I'm really excited about the number of times we've used the word unit in this particular show. It's actually <laughs> really excited. Um, and uh, we, it's, the other things that make me excited is we have giveaways. And uh, first of all, we give away t-shirts. We give away a t-shirt. So you guys, you know, I don't know if I can hold this high enough. Ta-da! The Peculiar Book Club. It's got a little blood on it, too, just, just for fun. Um, <laughs> you can't buy these. You can only win them. So we're going to give away two every show, and you can win a shirt. But you have to be registered. So that means you got to come back, but it also means you got to get your friends. So um, our two shirt winners today are, um, and I've written them down, but I realize I think I misspelled one of your names. I apologize. Um, Amanda Ellis and Kaza B, you guys are the hat picks for the tea, and you guys will, will just need to email me at peculiar, peculiar at com, or you can get to me on my website, but you send me an email with uh, your size and your address, and you win. A, yes, Kaza, you did. Um, and, and also Amanda, which is fun because Amanda got here late, so I'm glad Amanda's here. Amanda, you want a t-shirt? <laughs> you need to send me. Um, and uh, send me your address. So those are the t-shirts. If you like those, they come in a variety of different colors, and so I just kind of pick and choose depending on size, and um, and you get them, you, you might win. You might win again. We also are giving away a book for the best question, and I'm sorry, well, I don't think there's any question about who the best question was this particular time. <laughs> <laughs> Spent like almost half the time discussing the blue benches. So I want to say, Mike, Mike, you got it. You, you, Mike. Must, oh. And you know what, Mike, he, he met me in Connecticut. So Mike, I'll send you a UK copy. It's mm-hmm. a different cover since you already have the US one. And I'll send you one of the edible bookmarks, which I, I you might already have. <laughs> Oh, yeah. My friend Annabelle from uh, Conjurer's Kitchen made uh, edible bookmarks with both of my book covers. You wouldn't believe that they're edible, but they are edible. So I'll send you one. So send me your address and I'll get one. And thank you for engaging with this book in such an interesting and thoughtful way. I'm just I'm picturing like a piece of lettuce, like a romaine lettuce dubbed in a book, edible. <laughs> yeah, like a little. I know she's so talented. I, I, I met her on the isn't anything you got, in the look her, an edible look her up. I know K- kitchen's con she makes all kinds. I mean, she'll make like she, literally she could make like this book, like a cake, you know, and it looks exactly like a book and she's just so talented. So I'll, I'll stick and one I of those in too. as well. Like how, and you can stick it in the book. So it's flat. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send one. Or no, I'm going to see you in a week anyway, Brandy. So <laughs> oh, yeah. bring you some. <laughs> it's yeah. It's like wafer paper. Exactly. Oh, that's fascinating. All right. So. Fruit roll-ups are not good. Not bookmark, no. <laughs> no, it's not a fruit roll-up. <laughs> Any bookmark is edible if you believe in yourself. <laughs> uh, well, um, this is this is amazing. I feel like we could easily continue talking for the rest of our lives. Um, but oh, actually, in well, fact, yeah. Yeah. Lindsay and I are going to be having a, a, a podcast, and we're going to be doing it all the time. So yeah. um, 
whether yeah. you want it or not, we're going to be doing <laughs> other things, a couple other announcements and I promise we'll let you leave. Um, which was, we still have, uh, about 60 of our, um, peculiar book club season three shirts. I am only selling them through season three. So you need to get them before then. And if you order them before August 15th, you also get discount shipping, and that's $4 anywhere in the world, which is pretty good, actually, uh, considering the shipping is definitely more than that. So, um, so please order them. It has all the names of the artists, I'm sorry, the, uh, the authors on the back, and uh, can never get enough peculiarity. You can't. It's true. Um, and but, I hope that you guys will order them. But are the t-shirts edible? <laughs> if you believe in yourself, you believe in yourself. Right, well, Mike. listen, guys. Too. Also, make sure about the size because Brandy kindly brought me one on book tour, and she's like, "I brought my size for you," and it's like a belly shirt. <laughs> I was like, "Wow, this is like like a Hooters T-shirt on me. It's very tight." I put it on the other day because I was like, "Oh, I need a T-shirt. It's so hot." And I was like, "Oh, I this is a scene. I can't walk around like this." So. <laughs> Be be conscious of the of the sizes. They run a little small, <laughs> or I run a little big. I don't know, but there's definitely think about the sizes. <laughs> that's not. I am not a size two T. But I have no breasts, so that's probably part of it. I don't know. No, it's just funny because you like you took it out and you're like, I brought you my size. I was like, oh, <laughs> and I was like, well, let's see how this works. I mean, I got it on, but it was definitely obscene. <laughs> My husband liked it. He was like, yeah, that's like the right size. <laughs> well, and, and I'm also wearing the pin. I'm wearing, this is a pin that Lindsay gave me. Oh, yeah. It's a lovely octopus. Um, yeah. Um, oops. So anyway, I'll get you a bigger shirt when I come to visit you. <laughs> no, don't worry. I'm just saying, everybody be aware of sizes. <laughs> size up. Size up. <laughs> Getting it off is the trick. Yeah, I bet it is. You know, I, I had to cut it off, basically. In the end, I was like, I can't even get this thing off. <laughs> we were having a heat wave in the UK, so I thought, oh, a T-shirt. And then I put it on. I was like, oh, <laughs> my neighbors are going to be like, whoa. <laughs> you look like my size to me. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> you're, you're both on you're, this tiny screen, yeah. Yeah, I'm the, yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's always so fun to meet all you guys. And I also want to just say a shout-out to the Peculiar Book Club because I don't think there was an event I did on this book tour where there wasn't a peculiar there representing, which is great because it's super grueling. Um, I'm one of those authors who I love that people love the books and come out to support me, but I do find them really stressful. So it's so nice to see people out there, you know, supporting me. So thank you to everybody who came out. Um, it, that meant a lot to me. And so Brandy and Davey, you've created such an amazing community here and it's growing every day and I love it. Peculiars, the pecu we wouldn't, we would be nothing without the peculiars. And so, once again, thank you, Lindsay, but also thank you to all of you for coming. You're amazing. You make the show what it is, and we're so happy that you're part of our big weird family because it's true. If you are weird, you're family. You got the blue bottle blues when you wake up in the night. Don't make a big mistake because you can never make it right when you. Dope.
now.